0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sonic Talk Number two Hundred and Seventy Two. Uh uh, this is uh, going live today, Wednesday the oh, what is the date today? Wednesday the twentieth of June, and uh, we have uh, a number of people in the live chat room. If you've never visited the live chat room before, and you're watching this or listening to this recorded, please come to sonicstate.com/live, where there's a live video stream and. There's also a chat room where you can participate and uh, have your views known and just kind of chip in. Uh, and like I say, it's the the chat room is our large turbo brain where it uh, can pick up the stuff that uh, falls through the large holes. It's certainly in my knowledge anyway. I can't speak for the rest of the panel who are uh, extremely knowledgeable. And um, this week's a little bit different because we've got actually a... a a a sort of special guest in the form of Mr. Ethan Weiner. Ethan, how the devil are you? Well, first of all, Ethan is uh, based in the States, not too far away from where Rich Hilton is, a regular guest on the show. And uh, he's just written a book, or just released a book, called The Audio Expert, Everything You Need to Know About Audio. So, Ethan, um, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Thank you very much for joining us today and also for um, setting up Skype especially for us Uh, and I notice uh, we haven't got video for you but we've got a nice quality audio so uh, uh, perhaps first of all we could start by you could tell us what your signal path is it's something I like to quiz our guests about uh, from time to time so let's uh, let's have that right away if you don't mind
1: uh, signal path, you mean how am I getting in? Yeah, how to are you getting in? The internet? Well, I, I just have a plain old DSL connection. It's the fastest one they offer uh, in the uh, uh, switching boxes uh, right up at the end of my street, so I can get a pretty fast connection. Uh, I had cable uh, internet before, and I hate my cable company. Probably everybody hates their cable company, <laughs> but I really hate my cable company. And uh, I refuse to uh, uh, give them any of my business if I can avoid it. <laughs> what so. about
0: uh, what about audio signal path? How are you getting in that way?
1: Well, I have an Audio Technica forty thirty three. Uh, I bought the. Uh, uh, the first one, when they first came out, and I think I paid 650 bucks for it, and uh, this was a number of years ago. I forget exactly how long, 15, whenever they first came out with that microphone. And I wanted to get a high-quality microphone, and I've had good stuff in the past when I used to be involved in professional audio and owned a recording studio, and then kind of got out of that and took a detour into software development and some other stuff uh, for a number of years. And when I got back in, I started playing the cellos in the early 90s and set up a recording s- setup again Uh, in my home and wanted to get a good microphone I had a relationship with a local uh, retailer and I borrowed uh, from them on spec. I told them I would, I'll buy one of these and I got uh, a 4033 Neumann uh, U87 and an AKG 414 and I had my cello teacher come over and we recorded both of us playing her cello and my cello and the 4033 was actually the best and at that time it was $650 a year later when they got down to 350 uh, I bought a second one and again this was a very long time ago I think Did they match now. up
0: I wonder? Was the price reduction, um, did it give you a decent stereo pair or was the second one uh, yeah, $300 yeah, less? Yeah it was
1: fine yeah, yeah, I, 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 I mean I never actually measured them side by side or did anything but I've certainly used them uh, for stereo and it sounds fine and uh, uh, and I've always been happy and uh, people that know me know that uh, I, I, I like and appreciate good stuff but there's a of you know affordable equipment that's good too
0: absolutely we'll, we'll definitely come on to that later i'm just going to introduce the rest of our guests and then we'll get on to uh the, the sort of nitty-gritty of uh, your book and uh, some other topics i hope as well so uh, we'll start over there with pj tracy as he's sat there waiting and he's only recently come to us in video and it seems a shame not to utilize it pj how are you doing you're back on the sm7a then today i am yeah sounding, yes sounding good how are you
2: yeah in in honor of Ethan, I have run through my most character, characterful signal path. So I'm going <laughs> through I'm going through the um, germanium preamplifier today. Ah, lovely. This. Yeah.
0: So excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, PJ uh, PJ Tracy. Sound of course. Emmy winning composer, studio owner, pianist, um, general man about town, and uh, SM7B uh, enthusiast by as well, and germanium germanium nut. I think a recent discovery to that particular element.
2: Yeah, pleasure to be here.
0: Anyway, thanks for joining us also. And uh, we also have Mr. Rich Hilton, who is in Connecticut. Uh, Rich, of course, is uh, uh, not a Rogers' right-hand guy when it comes to the studio. Also tours with Chic. In fact, uh, we're lucky to have him because he's flitting about all over Europe. Well, coming to UK quite a lot to do various gigs. In fact, I think you were in the UK last week. Is that right, Rich? Both the last two weekends I was in the UK. Just like to pop over the pond for... Uh, can't keep away from the English beer, that's it, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I'll visit with a few thousand of my closest British friends.
0: Excellent. Well, no, nice to have you, Richard. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing very well, thank you.
0: So I'm guessing the weather for you is the same for uh, Ethan as well, as you're pretty close geographically, right?
3: Yes, it's very hot today. This is the first really seriously hot day of the season, I believe. And, yeah, uh, uh,
0: it, it's been raining for like six weeks here, and now, it's, now suddenly <laughs> it's got hot, which is kind of yes, cool. Yes, I know. Which is At cool. least part of that, I know. <laughs> yeah Alaska. yes you know that you've been visiting on the rainy days unfortunately which is a shame um and anyway thanks for joining us rich and also we have mr gaz williams uh who is a bass player producer songsurgeon.co.uk is where you can find him if i find his lower third uh no that's not it at all it's here i should know where that fader is by now anyway gaz how are you yeah good thank you am i loud enough um oh yes you are and you're going okay. through your tc helicon again right yeah, that's right. Um, I've just been
4: playing around with it. Uh, I'm trying to do this thing at the moment where I'm using the MIDI uh, the, the MIDI pedal that I've been using recently for the show I've just done, a bass to MIDI thing. Yeah. But having that controlling the notes of the TC Helicon so I can sort of play chords on the bass but have like an orchestral sound going on and I'm singing a choir. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> it's wicked it's amazing it's like the biggest sound i think you know it's just really odd to be sat playing bass but just having this you know massive orchestral thing going on singing this like the like the sonic state theme tune actually i should do a cover version of it (laughs)
1: excellent
4: Um, yeah so that's why i'm doing this and i'm just literally just farting around i think the right expression having
0: lots of fun playing just having a bit of time a bit of you time you've got have you got uh, audio technica 4033 as well did you I got I've got 4035, actually, ah. which is similar. Is that yes. the one I dropped when you brought it over to the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> immediately. That's right. Um, uh, for those it's who a- are wondering why, we had uh, a big reunion last time Rich was uh, in the area. Uh, we managed to get uh, everybody. Uh, we got Rich, we got Mark, we got uh, a bunch of us all in the same room and did a kind of round table thing rather than doing it remotely. And Gaz came over and brought a few mics because I knew we were going to be a bit short. And I proceeded to drop his uh, Audio Technica. And- and- yeah,
4: and it survived. So it that's survived. Always, that's at, always a good advert.
0: That, yeah, so there we go. Obviously, a very robust. So anyway, um, back to Mr. Ethan Weiner. Um, Ethan, your book has just come out, The Audio Expert. I'm just going to flip to a screenshot of the uh, of it here. In fact, here's a sort of preview of it on Amazon. It's about 48, 49 bucks, I guess. Um, yeah. It's called The Audio Expert, Everything You Need to Know About Audio. And it's kind of, is it, would it be fair to say that it, the idea is for it to be a kind of handbook? I mean, there used to be uh, a similar tome that uh, all audio engineers, was the, it was the audio engineer handbook. Is it supposed to be kind of something along those lines or have you got something at is, is a slightly different angle?
1: Well, I do have a slightly different angle. There's uh, there's a lot of books about audio, and most of them tell you how to use a compressor, and you know what an equalizer does, and here's some guidelines on you know how you would pick what frequencies or set thresholds and stuff. And here's what a reverb unit does. And I have that, and I go go into that kind of stuff in great depth. Uh, but I also explain how these things work internally, and actually show how. Uh, a certain time, you know, a lot of DSP works, uh, how compressors are actually constructed. Uh, there's some schematic diagrams. My goal is, I'm not a math person, and my goal is to uh, explain things in practical, maybe mechanical terms. Uh, but, uh, but so you can really, you know, without getting you know, into a lot of math and, and overly technical, but you can still understand a lot of the stuff. Uh, I, I see audio as plumbing, uh, and, and there's a lot of similarities between that and uh, you know a mixing console uh, is a whole bunch of channels that are the same, and that's not unlike uh, you know the the plumbing and or, or electrical wiring, uh, power wiring in a big apartment building. I mean, each, you know you got 100 apartments and they're all the same, uh, and they all connect through a common bus. Uh, so there's a lot of those kinds of parallels. Transformers are. Uh, uh, essentially uh, the transmission in an automobile, I mean, they really are exactly the same. Uh, uh, They exchange, uh, you know, voltage and current ratios, uh, just the way a transmission would exchange speed and torque. So there's a lot of those kinds of practical analogies. Uh, I also get into, in great depth, into human perception, how we hear the masking effect, Uh, Because that's so important uh, for assessing equipment and uh, I think understanding our own hearing foibles and limitations is, uh, is, is important. So there's, uh, and I also define fidelity in great detail. There's a lot. Of, it's really very, very detailed, but without a lot of math, I guess. Uh, so I think that's what makes it easy. It's
0: interesting. You mentioned the kind of uh, automobile or the, uh, the the engine paradigm, and, uh, because I mean, I noticed in the introduction to the book that you uh, you said that you kind of that was your first introduction to kind of how things work was sort of tinkering with uh, two-stroke um, lawnmower engines to make go-karts and that kind of stuff. So you're very much a kind right. of practical, hands-on kind of guy. Are you the guy that everybody goes to when stuff needs fixing as well?
1: Oh boy, I sure am. <laughs> I make videos for friends, I fix everybody's computer, and if they're not here I, you know, help them on the phone. Yeah, I'm the <laughs> I'm the tech support guy.
0: So what what kind of motivated you to write this book? Because I mean, looking at your public persona sort of that is represented through, you know, the the, uh, presentations that you do and the forums and that kind of thing, you know, you're very much seem to be very much about kind of like, no, this is actually, you you should understand how this works before you could kind of say what you what, you know, what you think is happening
1: right well i you know i'm interested in how things work and i know a lot of people aren't there's a lot of recording engineers that really don't care at all how you know how an equalizer works and how phase shift when you mix uh, you know a signal with a phase shifted version that gives you a change in the response a lot of people don't care about that but a lot of people do care about that and i care about that so i'm aiming for those people but i also come at this from a consumerist perspective uh and 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 it's no secret that I get into uh, uh, let's say scuffles sometimes <laughs> yeah. in forums with people. Uh, and my I'm really not interested in converting what I call believers. If somebody wants to believe this or that about audio gear, uh, that's fine. My concern is for the people who really do want to know: Do I have to spend a thousand dollars on speaker wire to get the best results? Do I really have to pay this much money? You know, because this is so so common. You know, if somebody will come to a forum, I only have two hundred bucks. Uh, you know, what should I get? And, uh, uh, so. So I, you know, a lot of my emphasis is on consumerism as well as explaining how things really work. And when you understand how stuff really works, you know what's important and you know what's not important. Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. So com- I mean,
0: I noticed that you know, in your sort of uh, in the sort of history of the articles that you that you that you've written, I mean, there's quite a lot of uh, stuff about it like that. Same for the Sound Blaster. I mean, have you been kind of known as the Sound Blaster guy because you were at the time uh, when that that was uh, commercially available? I'm not sure if it's actually still available as the Sound Blaster kind of saying well as a sound card it's kind of fine as long as you get some other stuff right you're kind of do okay with that i mean do you uh, uh, do you find yourself you've become inadvertently sort of the champion of the uh, of the technical underdog as it were in terms of you know or certainly the the how much gear costs
1: uh yes i do like to think of myself as a champion of the underdog and you know point you know when when somebody is new to recording and their uh mixes sound terrible the their sound card is usually not the real reason but i do want to clarify something i am not a champion of sound blaster cards (laughs) i have one in my current computer i've in fact i've had one for a number of years because i uh create my a lot of my own samples uh in the sound font format it's just a format i've been using forever and i'm familiar with it and it's a perfectly good format it's based on wave Whatever quality you can get into a WAV file, you can get back out in sound fonts. And uh, the way the editing software works, it's free from uh, Creative Labs. Uh, But you have to have a physical sound blaster in your card. You could think of it as uh, almost as copy protection, and that's just how they do it. But I don't advocate that. That's not my main sound card. It's never been my main sound card. Right now, I have a Focusrite. Before that, I had an M-Audio. You know, I had a... uh, uh geez again a card d plus it cost a lot of money uh you know back in the 90s so i'm not you know i'm not a a booster of cheap stuff and uh, i'm not opposed to good stuff i like nice things i have nice things but i I like to think i know where to spend money and where you can save money
0: oh that's an interesting i mean so uh, coming back to the book i mean There's quite a lot of stuff in there about myth busting. And I know when, you know, you did your 2009 AES presentation, there was a lot of stuff about, you know, the jars of rocks and the kind of, you know, $20,000 power cable and that kind of thing. I mean, do you think that we often look for reasons other than our own ability when it comes to why our music should sound better? (laughs)
1: Absolutely, I think a lot of people are looking for this magical bullet that will, you know, transform their crappy mixes into something that sounds pristine and professional and clear, and uh, uh, and that's not, of course that's not where it is. It's using knowing how to use an equalizer, knowing what to compress, knowing what not to compress, and it's mostly knowledge. And of course, uh, my uh, interest in acoustics uh, is not because I sell acoustic products. I sell acoustic products because I really believe that that's where the biggest gains are to be made. If you are recording in a bedroom and you have a lot of reflecting surfaces nearby, it's going to sound hollow and off mic and boxy because of that. And no matter how good a mic you have or preamp or whatever outboard gear you have is not going to overcome, uh, you know, bad cou- sure. to say with mixing.
0: I was just going to say actually what we, what, uh, Happy Fun team in the chat room is just saying, what was the focus right? What is the focus right you use out of interest? We're not looking for product endorsements here, but people are generally interested in the facts and figures of our, uh, the gear that we use.
1: Right. Well, and I spend a, 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 a quite a bit of detail, uh, there's a lot of detail in the book about how gear is spec'd and what the specs mean. And, uh, and how specs vary, and, and maybe even most important, how the various specs relate to audibility is, you know, the difference between 001% distortion and 005% distortion is, uh, is, you know, really, you know, it's not audible. Yeah, one is twice as much distortion as the other, but in both cases, it's, you know, it's too soft to hear, so who cares?
0: Right. Well, that's, I, I, there's also some very interesting points you make about um, about how, listening tests should be conducted and how and one of the things about the aes presentation was just brilliant there was just uh, the other talkers poppy crumb and uh, 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 um, JJ were sort of just demonstrating how we could be so easily influenced to what we think we hear and what we're listening for I mean almost the fact that we're actually listening for something will influence the results of a test and that I find that a fascinating subject in fact I think we talked about it at the time just sort of just how the perception of things can work so
1: right. were well, you Yeah, well, you can play the same mix twice in a row, and nothing's changed, and it can sound different, and some of that is uh, your head. I mean, if you move your head literally four inches, you'll get a different frequency response at both ears, and some of it is just perception. You can't focus on everything at once, and one time you might listen to the ping of the cymbal, and the next time you might listen to the fullness and the tone of the bass, And, uh, uh, and you can't hear all that stuff at once. So, you know, People will get up and or they'll uh, you know, change a wire from you know, one brand to another. And all of a sudden they hear this little delicate you know, hi-hat figure say, oh, this is so much clearer. But it was just like that five minutes ago. It's just they weren't noticing it. Uh, not, not that everything sounds the same, but a lot of times things do sound the same and people don't really realize it.
0: So th- this led me to my next question, which is, so how do we know when something is good if, if that's the case?
1: Well, you know, there's two things. There's pure fidelity and there's sometimes intentional uh, 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 deviation from high fidelity that still sounds good. Uh, A lot of people like the sound of analog tape. I don't think anybody could argue that it's higher fidelity than modern digital because if you go by the standard specs of frequency response, distortion, signal-to-noise, and time-based errors, and time-based meaning wow and flutter and stuff which digital doesn't have, digital beats analog tape hands down but a lot of people prefer the sound of analog tape and there's nothing wrong with that that's fine Uh, I like that effect on some things Uh, but it's important to distinguish those two things what you know one is you know whether it's fidelity and what's preference Uh, with preference and when you're mixing anything goes if you want to add a distortion plugin with a little bit of distortion a whole lot of distortion uh, that's fine but once you get the mix sounding exactly as you want I would think the goal would then be to Preserve it on the uh, uh, distribution medium, whether it's a CD or a high-bitrate MP3 file or whatever.
0: Well, that I mean, I suppose in some respects that kind of undermines the whole uh, the whole argument for audio fidelity and audio file, as you know, ninety percent of the world is listening to stuff on crummy MP3 distributions or various other kind of compression methods. I mean, so how do those two things reconcile?
1: Well, well, I don't know if they have to reconcile. Personally, I find that once the bit rate is, you know, 256 kbps, I think MP3 sounds fine. I, you know, uh, I'm 63 years old. My frequency, my the highest frequency I can hear is about 14 kilohertz if I really crank it. So, not that high frequencies is the issue with MP3s. That's not really the loss. The loss is more that kind of hollow gurgling sound you get as uh, other frequencies within the mid range and 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 bass range are removed. Uh, but I yeah i don't really think one ha- i don't I, I don't really think that that's relevant uh you should aim for as high as fidelity as possible everywhere. And then people will have to accept what they accept. I think some of the, I, I don't buy music from online stores, but I think some of them you can pay like a buck a, a track for, you know, MP3s and you can pay higher for flack or some other high, higher quality modes. So, uh, you know, I think people can pay for whatever they want. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's kind of outside of my domain and my interest. Uh, I mean, I'm interested in how the technology works and how the degradation happens and what's audible and what's not, but what people choose to buy is not a big of big concern right, to me. I
0: got you. So, I mean, what is the kind of weakest link in your kind of average setup? I mean, where is it that you kind of think that? I mean, you spoke about acoustic that side of things. I mean, is that really the, the room treatment? I mean, because you also have real traps, uh, which are uh, commercially available uh, acoustic treatments. They're pre-made and custom-made as well, right?
1: Uh, we do some custom stuff, but it's mostly pre-made. And we also do consulting. Sometimes people don't want the look of panels at all. And if they have enough money to do that, of course, it costs more. Uh, we'll do consulting and tell them how to build stuff in so that it doesn't even show. But if you want to know in order, I would say the order, and let's just talk about playback, you know, as opposed to a recording live okay. room, but just yeah, for yeah. a mix room or a listening room for a hi-fi person. Uh, the room is certainly the worst. Uh, the frequency response uh, is going to have a span of th- at least 25 or 30, and sometimes 40 dB uh, peaks and nulls. You know there'll be a, a really deep null at 60 hertz, a big peak at 72 hertz, a really big null. It's a roller coaster, and these are you know typically in a bedroom size, size space, even a large bedroom. Uh, even a modest sized living room, you're going to have a whole pile of uh, 30, 40 dB uh, peaks and nulls differences. No loudspeaker is that bad. I mean, even the cheapest piece of junk, you know, cheap loudspeakers generally will have resonances and they'll fall off at the low end, they'll fall off at the high end. But they're not going to have the incredibly skewed response that a room has. So then second would be the loudspeakers. Uh, third would be microphones, and then all the electronic stuff is after that. Uh, High quality electronics is a commodity item. I mean, you can buy, you know, perfectly good stuff for a hundred bucks.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's the, there's been that I don't know if it is a myth, but uh, where it's been said, you know, that essentially the kind of converter chips in most A to D stuff or D to A stuff comes from the same sort of three product lines, and it's really about the exactly. kind of power supply and the the case and the and the uh, and the plugging in of the various features. I mean, I don't know how true that is entire in entirety, but the, the difference I guess it just illustrates that the difference between them is not generally so wild that your music will just be unlistenable if you use X or Y. Or,
1: Exactly. Yeah, and I don't even know how much difference a power supply makes. I mean, you know, people that do this stuff for a living are, are generally competent. And you know, if you design something and the power supply is lousy, you know, then it's you know, then then it's not good. But I don't think that's the case. I think most stuff is uh, reasonably competently made. And, and in fact, I find most of the incompetence in the hi-fi world in the really really expensive stuff from Hi-Fi. I I saw a pair of speakers at a Hi-Fi show once that were $16,000 a pair, and they were absolutely the worst. They were worse than a pair of Behringer passives. I mean, and I'm, I'm not kidding. They had resonators built onto them as if a loudspeaker should resonate. They had, I think it was a, two or three four-inch drivers. That was, you know, this is what they're selling for $16,000. I see this with hi-fi tube amps that blow up if you don't have something hooked up to the input or if the speaker wire falls off, the whole thing blows up, <laughs> and, you know, in literally 10 or 15% distortion. So, uh, but, you know, other than that, I think most stuff is good enough Or to put it in the terms that I usually do, that's not the reason your products, your your production suck. It's not because of the gear. Do
0: you think we're, uh, do you think we're just not man enough or woman enough to take the fact that actually we just suck?
1: generally <laughs> yeah well you know i mean even a mix that you make that's good will sound good to you one day and sound bad another day i've learned that uh uh you know i think my living room home theater setup it sounds really really good i mean i have a lot of friends who are recording engineers and musicians and they come over here to watch stuff on blu-ray uh but i found that if i tell somebody oh you got to come over and hear my setup it sounds great they come over and while we're both listening, it sounds worse to me, you know, and uh, but
0: that's down to perception, <laughs> isn't it? That's down to your your insecurities as a human being rather than exactly. Else, right? Exactly. Yeah. That, that, but that, again, is another interesting point about listening Uh PJ, you uh, actually have this book um, and I know uh, that you were kind of uh, interested about it, Ethan, when uh, when this came up. Was there anything in there particularly that kind of uh, resonates with you that you would like to uh, maybe uh, share with us?
2: Uh, well, I just have a question sort of along the same lines of, of, of the way that you've been going, Nick, and that is that if um, if it is down to um, best practices, which I, you know, which I fully, fully believe, um, you know, in terms of, of generating uh, listenable music and good quality mixes and that kind of thing, what would Ethan's recommendation be for people who are getting into audio engineering, some of whom I'm sure are listening to our show? Um, in, in terms of where where should they go, what would be what would be some of the places that you would recommend in this day and age where the mentorship is kind of falling down um, in our industry uh, for people to learn best practices and and to practice them and get feedback
1: well I, you know I really believe in one on one tutoring uh, you know, and obviously books, a book like mine is, is good. Uh, but if somebody's a real beginner, they may not understand some of the terminology though. I really do start at the beginning. I make the point on my, I have a, a page on my website, ethanwiner.com If you just go there, there's a, a link right away to a page that describes my book. And I make the point that it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not a dummy's book for beginners, but it, in, in many ways it really is. I mean, it really starts at the beginning and explains everything in plain English. But anyways, not to get too far off the uh, the track, uh, I th- I think that uh, a one-on-one mentoring is probably the best thing somebody could do if you can find somebody that knows what they're doing and has a personal studio or a real studio. Uh, you can, you know, if you, if you buy, uh, I use Sonar and people use Logic, Pro Tools, Cubase, all the major DAW programs. But, you know, they all come with 600-page manuals, and what you want to know is, how do I do what I need to do that applies to me, and how do I find exactly what I want to do now? I'm trying to insert this thing, and I can't figure it out, and nobody wants to sit there and read a manual for two weeks. So I think, you know, paying somebody, you know, a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks to sit with you for a few hours, uh, maybe even come to your place. Is probably the most valuable. I think that's the most valuable way to learn. Uh, but obviously, you know, I mean, this is such a huge subject. How do you learn about music production while well, you listen to music? I mean, it's, it's yeah. kind of almost too mm-hmm. big a question.
0: No, that's, that's I, I, I take your point there. I mean, it, but it, it's also valid because, I mean, the thing is, there are lots of kids who are coming up who are coming just purely through an in the box route and they're kind of buying, uh, you know, uh, massive and a couple of, you know, uh, drum preferred drum sources and they're just hammering the stuff into whatever bus compressor because that's seen as the perceived way to create music of that style and that genre and it's kind of completely bypassing uh the whole kind of technical expertise side of things which is quite interesting yet it's still achieving uh commercially successful results and i mean i guess some of it is probably deconstructed and reconstructed again in professional studios but some of it makes it from you know the eighth inch out of the laptop into uh into the outside world essentially and that's that's interesting that sort of found knowledge is also um, seems to be happening quite a lot as well Uh,
1: yeah yeah well i'm a huge proponent of in the box i don't have any outward gear i used to when i first set up my current uh, studio i've been at this house for 18 years and when uh, just before I moved here, I actually started buying gear. And then when I moved here, I set it up and I bought more stuff. I had outboard synths, and you know, uh, you know, lots of outboard gear. Uh, and then eventually, when when Sonar came out, uh, I wasn't a big fan of CakeWalk, and I was using uh, a saw uh, studio before that. But when uh, CakeWalk came out with Sonar, and integrated MIDI and audio, I said this is the way to go. And uh, so I'm, and I, uh, my partner and I both sold all our gear uh, up all our upward gear obviously you need a mixer for monitoring you need preamps and stuff to get stuff in Uh, but uh, I think that I you can do everything and of course the paradigm of of modern DAW programs is a big professional studio it's everything you would have in a big professional studio and you can even buy a control surface I don't personally like those though I understand people do Uh, I don't find mixing with a mouse uh, so to speak to be a problem but I understand that people like a control surface but I don't I just personally don't see anything you can do with outboard gear that you can't do uh, in the box. And if you like distortion, if you want subtle analog sound, there are plugins for that, and I think they're I think they're good enough.
0: Mm, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, Gaz, what do you think about the whole uh, concept of of having to have a sort of is a technical basis required? I mean, I suppose if you're recording, it's more important than if you're just kind of messing about with uh, software synths and what have you, right? Well. The thing that's on my mind was I did a session on Saturday with
4: a, a producer called David Tickle and David Tickle is uh, has got an incredible oh, uh, I mean he's produced some serious stuff um you know he he mixed all the classic Prince albums uh, Purple Rain and, and those that era and loads of stuff My Sharona um, oh. <laughs> yeah uh, but he produced...
0: Mac, uh, if I remember correctly.
4: Yeah, uh, working under Mike Chapman, but he, he recorded and mixed it. But he, as a producer, he's worked with loads and loads of people. Incredible. Uh, I was so impressed. Uh, Split End, someone says. Yes, he did. Um, uh, but now, what was interesting and relevant is with him producing, he, he was nothing... It was not about the equipment at all. It was all about... The music and the vibe and the performance and making everyone relaxed and, you know, uh, and just uh, equipment wasn't even an issue at all. I mean, there was an engineer on the job, so I suppose this is a slightly deferred. But the the point I'm trying to say, though, is that uh, he used Pro Tools in a very minimal kind of way. Um, because he was trying to get everything at source, you know, and it's just that thing. I often mention this, but you know, when you get it at source and you get the feeling and the mood right, you know, it. If you put that onto like a onto like a cassette or something, if the feel was good, the audience would listen and like it. You know, people people are really sensitive to the feel of music, I think, and the, mm. so you know, so I think getting the feel right, the equipment matters less you know that's uh well
0: that's that's an interesting point i know rich are are you um you know that what at what point do you have to say no we have to do that properly now because the recording or the take or whatever there may be something wrong you know what is the kind of lower end of the threshold and how much you know is there a kind of point of no return where you just think hey look that's the take it's just going to have to do and you have to work with it or is that are there kind of perceptual um, points of which it's like, no, that's, you know, nobody's going to go for that. I mean, if you do, do... I,
3: I was recently provided a concert DVD of us in which the audio was almost exact. It was squared. It was just a box. <laughs> 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 and I tried the currently available tools just to see how close they would get. And they got it a little closer, but nowhere near acceptability. So there is a level of, for example, audio uh disruption that is still to this day
1: unrecoverable um but that said pardon yeah clipping yeah i mean once it's clipped, you know well there are
3: some cool declipping algorithms that for short-term burst kind of events will do a fairly decent job that prevents you from having to pencil your way through it of trying to recover A transient, for example, or a series of transients, or kick drums, or whatever. But but when you get to this whole the whole mix being like that, it it was just completely unrecoverable. But anyway, but to get the basic point here is no it's not the gear, yes it's the person.
0: I suppose I suppose I mean clipping is That's it because it's so distorted that it's, you know, you have, you you can only take a couple, you know, a couple of little bits and bobs are not such a problem. And you listen to some of the old uh, Motown or Hendrix recordings, and there are moments in there, very short, admittedly, where it's like, oh, that's a little bit on the edge. But I guess with tape, it's a bit more forgiving. But so, I mean, there are areas where that can happen. But there's sort of stuff like, you know, I don't know where, uh, I mean, for instance, I guess if a a vocalist is mumbling um, because they haven't written the lyrics yet. You know, but they can never recapture that. I mean, I don't know how how far you could go. I mean, that's more of an artistic thing, I guess, than an audio thing.
1: But um yeah, I, yeah, but that's operator error. I mean, that's nothing to do with the gear. If somebody, you know, isn't watching the meters when they're recording and it's, you know, 10 dB over clipping, you know, that's operator error.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Uh hmm. I was just thought it was interesting to to maybe think about the you know what the parameters of acceptability are because as we listen to MP3s and as we listen to things in different lower qualities, our perception is going to shift. You know, if I've got at home a massively expensive hi fi listening room where I can hear every detail, and I still you know one of the my my most endearing memories is of the KD Lang album Ingenue, which is one of the most beautifully recorded albums I've ever heard. You know, it's not electronic at all. But uh, I listened to that on a pair of uh, quad electrostatic EL63s, and I could just hear, you know, how tall the guitarist was, you know, how far away the <laughs> fiddle player. I don't know whether that was constructed in the mix or whether that was because there was a room involved and that's where they all stood. But it was, it was a most, it was almost an ecstatic moment of audio pleasure that I, I've, I've yet to recreate anywhere else. But all, all I'm saying is, if I've got, depends what I'm used to listening to as to what you know we we consider to be. Good enough or acceptable in that environment, and you know, listen to FM radio. That really screws with the sound massively once you've kind of they've put it through their secret source algorithms. Um, So it's not necessarily how it's uh, it was first intended to be made, but there's there's this sort of. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a there's a norm which gets applied, which is kind of outside of the artist's control. I mean, PJ, you probably find that a little bit, particularly because you're working to picture a lot, and TVs is are particularly brutal when it comes to mastering and and uh, allowable dynamic range. I mean, do you find there are ways that you can compensate for that, or do you just kind of leave it to leave it to chance?
2: Uh, a lot of things are left to chance especially if you're providing stems to someone else or to a video editing company and they're monkeying with your audio um there's there's not a not a whole lot i can i can do i just try to provide them with the best work that i can in the allowable time frame um and and you know to to the previous points of all of the guests uh i i completely agree on a creative level that uh, it has very little to do with the gear um the, the capturing of a of a performance i mean with within reason obviously and I, and everybody everybody here is eminently reasonable um however that that being said once you once you get beyond that point and your and your uh you know you're involved in in creating your own music or involved in in doing it with others in a collaborative process there there's a in in my in my humble opinion and it uh, and i will qualify this there and ethan speaks to this in his book Um, there is, um, there is obviously the, the imparting of character that certain devices, uh, you know, can can do in, in this, within the signal path. And for me personally, there's an uncanny Valley. Um, you know, if you, if you compare it to three dimensional rendering in, in video, so special effects in movies, special effects in movies have gotten extremely, extremely good, um, you know, to Mm -hmm. where. People people can watch a film and not tell where you know where digital imagery was inserted and where it wasn't. In other cases, it's not it's it's misapplied. I think we're really approaching that in terms in terms of audio and the plug and the plugins available. However, there are a few places where there's still that that three or four percent, and you have to ask yourself as an artist whether or not the price disparity and there's usually a heavy one. Is worth it to you, or if the if the working um, style or the, the the way in which you 're able to implement these tools is worth it to to pay the price for the outboard gear and in in my case in certain circumstances it, it was it was worth it to make those purchases at this point point. and i I think that that's that's something that really needs to be considered, but all of, i agree entirely with with all of ethan's arguments and and the other guest statements in terms of um, you know the veracity of plugins and and uh, and performance being key and vibe being key to the success of a recording on a creative level and and a, and a listening level.
0: Do you think that I mean because you've just invested heavily in kind of some really beautiful uh, equipment? I mean, what 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 was your thought process as to why you? Require that to sort of take your work forward, or is it because it rec- it gives you a certain sound, or is it give you does it give you a kind of subliminal confidence that allows you to do things m- more easily? I mean, how how does that work in, in from that sense?
2: For me, part of it was workflow. Um, it was simply uh, the capturing of things at source. So if i if I run if I run audio signals through specific signal paths, there's uh, you know there's a discernible difference um, uh, to, to to my ears. Right. Um, and and to me, tone is the trip. Um, and uh, part of this had to do with, um, I, I've, I've spoken privately about this, but uh, some health issues that I've had and having sort of come out the other side of those and, um, and sort of cl- cleared up, uh, cl- sort of gotten myself into a space where I can appreciate you know, appreciate the subtle differences, uh, where, where I wasn't able to for, right. for many, many years before that. So it's, it's that, but the, the other is, uh, in case of, in the case of all the gear that I chose for this room, uh, everything has a specific purpose to me. So right. it's, it's kind of like, choo- you know, choosing a brush for a very specific reason and, and everything was chosen for, for a very specific reason. And most of it was to, um, to, to achieve a result and, in as timely a fashion as I possibly can, and and I I think that I could probably get very close with the tools in the box, but it would take me longer to do it
0: that right. way. So yeah. yeah, speed and workflow kind of do make yep. do make sense to to a yep. degree. Uh, I just wanted to come back to Ethan there a minute uh, because one of the things that you know famously also you you have you you seem to come under an awful lot of attack by. Z- 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 all my, all my audio audiophile zealots and people that kind of have a very strong opinion. I mean, you know, the the internet is obviously a place for debate, and this tends to happen. I and mean, why do you think people are so uh, bipolar, if you like, about this subject? What is it? Why why can't they compromise? You know, what is that? What do you think it is that 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 makes people so focused on being right?
1: Well, everybody wants to be right. Yeah, but okay. I think I think some of it is uh, people that. As they say, drank the Kool-Aid and dropped, you know, $12,000 on a whole bunch of channels of high-end compressors, really hate when somebody else comes in and says, well, you know, the $100 per channel stuff sounds just as good. You can't tell the difference. And they get really mad at that. And then they say, "Well, sure, I can." I said, "Well, then well, you come over to my place. You know, you're you're only an hour away. I'll come over to your place and let's do a test." They said, well, tests don't tell anything, you know. And uh, you know, well, no. If I if you're telling me that this is garbage and your thing is pristine, and I switch back and forth, and you can't tell, you know, so they get very mad because I don't back down. That's I think that's part of it. Also, right. uh, I'm awfully certain of my positions. Not that I'm always right, and I've been proven wrong. I have a whole list of things I've been wrong about over the years. I actually. <laughs> kept a, I have this text file and it's got like you know, a dozen things in there. And one of these days I'm going to write an article, say, here's what I was wrong about. Just because there are people that absolutely refuse to ever change their opinion. And I'm glad to change my opinion. Just give me some facts, give me some proof, play it for me, you know, and convince me. Uh, but don't tell me I have to believe you just because you have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, mixes that are number one hits. That doesn't mean you understand the stuff. It doesn't, you know, how the technology works. It doesn't mean you understand hearing perception and all the frailties. It just means that you know how to turn the knobs and make stuff sound good. So I don't back down. I'm pretty opinionated. Uh, but, you know, another thing uh, that I think is a factor, and uh, and not to disagree with what PJ was saying, because I think that there are situations in certain ways that you get used to working that is faster to get a good sound but i have noticed because i used to do the professional recording you know for many years i had a, a big major studio in the uh, early 80s 1980s and we did all kinds of stuff for famous clients and a lot of, a lot of things and i noticed that some sessions just stink and some just sound great <laughs> one of the best sessions i ever did was a believe it or not a big band poke a, a big band polka band and you know they had you know it was a big band with with the whole deal and but they played polka music and it just sounded great you put the mics up you just set everything to flat and just get reasonable levels on the board and it sounded great and other things, you get these, uh, you know, punk bands that come in and you got some piano player that plays nonstop, pounding out, you know, the muddy octave below middle C. And, you know, and bass playing uh, has bass player is lousy and, and, extra, and strings are ringing on the low note while he's playing high notes and stuff. And you, it's, a, it's a mess. Some things just sound good. So I think that what sometimes happens is somebody will do a session that's like that. And then they'll buy some new gear. And then the next session they do is one of those good ones. And I say, wow, that gear really makes a difference. And no, it wasn't the gear at all. And I'm not saying that all gear is the same. I have to. I feel I have to keep saying that because I'm accused of saying that, just like I'm accused of being a sound blaster proponent. But I think that that's as much of it. Uh, I think that's often responsible for the for the, you know, people saying, you know, I bought this thing and, and it was so much easier to get a good sound because every session really is different. Every group is different. Every instrumentation is different. And arrangements, musical arrangements are key, you know, in the, in the old days. And I mean the, you know, 1800s, uh, 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 EQ and, uh, uh, and sculpting, uh, as they call it now, was done by the composer and the arranger. And they, would, you know, they wouldn't have the cellos playing high stuff that competed with the low notes of the viola. And, uh, and they knew what, what different instrument groups sound good and what ranges. And now a lot of times uh, if the band doesn't know how to do that, the engineer has to do that. Uh, and some jobs just require more of that than others
0: yeah that's a very good point actually. Uh, one other point that I should really point out now I've just realized that've been uh, we've been as we've been chatting away, I've completely forgotten to uh, mention um, our sponsors who uh, if you give me a couple of minutes, I can just quickly um say thank you very much to Yamaha for their continued sponsorship of the show. obviously uh in terms of uh Oop, let me just switch that. Yes, there we are, the video there. Now, if you actually uh, are watching on video, you'll be able to see this lovely uh, video of the Yamaha 01V96i, which is a compact digital audio console. Uh, Just reviewed it, actually, and I was quite impressed. The micamp sounded really uh, quite impressive. Uh, Like I said, a lot of gain on the ribbon mic that we use here, and just very nice and quiet. But it's got a whole lot more besides. You've also got 40 mixing channels, 32 mono, 4 stereo, 16 analog and 8 digital inputs. 8 channel ADAT IO as standard. There's also a YGDAI slot for additional IO options. So, uh, Yamaha make a number of those for AudioNet and CobraNet and AES and more analog channels, etc. etc. Uh, it, it basically has 16 in, 16 out on USB audio as well. And this is 24 bit 96K full streaming IO, which is astonishing, really. I didn't even know that it could. Squeeze down a tube of that size, but uh, but and that works very nicely as well because you can then patch the inserts and the in and out points within your door and integrate that into the channels as well. And there's there's a whole lot of other features as well. You've got 24 bit 96 k operation. Uh, 8 auxes, 8 buses, 100mm motorised faders, up to 4 effects simultaneously at 24, 41, 48k. Goes down to 2 when you're at 96. Uh, these include the VCM effects which are uh, modelled effects for the stomp boxes, uh, EQs, compressors as well as all the standard SPS, SPX class uh, effects that you would come to expect from a Yamaha digital console. Anyway, we want you to try one out. Uh, if you're interested, uh, you can go to a Pulse store within the UK. Uh, these are kind of bigger stores within stores where they have a larger range of the yamaha gear try one out maybe take a drive down record some sound into it uh, take it home and listen to it in the quality of your own home uh, or if you're in the us any of the major yamaha dealers should have one and there's a bitly url which you can use bit.ly slash zero one v That's B i that's bit.ly slash zero one v one i and once again we thank yamaha for their continued sponsorship of the show Right, I've excused us that uh, little commercial interlude. Um, there was another couple of questions that I was, uh, I, I had lined up, which I'm just going to have to dig around. But if anyone else wants to chip in because uh, I, I realize I've been rather uh, monopolizing Ethan here, but um, it's my show, so I suppose I can. But if anyone else <laughs> has any other questions, I know Rich. I mean, you use the real trap stuff, don't you? I mean, is that? Uh, do, do you find it make um, acoustic treatment can make a really radical difference, or does it just sort of tighten up the edges?
3: I'll go with really radical difference for a 1,000, Alex. <laughs> uh,
0: really radical difference in our room. Right. And I guess, I mean, because a lot of things that, uh, looking at the, uh, again, I keep referring back to this 2009 AES um, presentation you did. Uh, Ethan, there's, there's a lot of it's about comb filtering and the, the radical difference that there is between just small movements and changes in sound source. I mean, is that something, how, how hard is that to deal with acoustically?
1: Uh, it's not hard at all. Comb filtering is mostly a mid and high frequency issue, which is uh, solved with relatively thin absorbing panels. The the larger problem in uh, most rooms, uh, you know, home sized rooms, home studio sized rooms, and even, you know, you know, some professional rooms, you know, I mean, until you get to 40 by 50 feet, you know, uh, the, the major problem is the base, uh, because it requires uh, much thicker absorbers and a lot of them. Uh, comb filtering, uh, you know, and, and reflections are placement dependent. I mean, loudspeaker reflection points are on the sidewalls and the ceiling uh, and in a live room situation recording. You know, if, uh, if you have a, a low ceiling, you want something directly above your overhead mics. If you have an acoustic guitar player that's two feet away from a reflecting wall, you want something there. But that kind of stuff is pretty easily solved with, uh, with relatively thin absorber panels. But the bass is really the problem. Uh, the the bigger problem.
0: Yeah, I guess because physically those things just have to be big and will take up room in any kind of space, right?
1: Right. Yeah, and the wavelengths are long, and uh, uh, and it's it's well, it's a little technical to explain, though. There's certainly lots of drawings in my in my book that show that. Uh, but yeah, a, and the, enough of the wave has to fit within the thickness of the material, I guess would be the short way to say it. And if a, you know, if a wave is 20 feet long, you know, then, uh, and you need at least part of the quarter of a wave of it to fit in the material. So, you know, four, six, eight inch, even thick absorbing material works a whole lot better and, and to a much lower frequency, uh, than, you know, one or two inch, uh, stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing, uh, in your job, you must have to deal with, uh, the, uh, let me see how that, the the uh, the mercurial tastes of the interior decorator as well so uh,
1: yeah was- well you know with home studios a lot of people can do whatever they want because it's a it's their own room and a lot of hi-fi people have a dedicated room that's a really good trend and you know sometimes we get uh you know people coming to us you know they're hi-fi people and they know that their living room is terrible and they say well you know i know what i, I need stuff but my wife objects i say well, okay well when something changes give us a call because <laughs> you, know, you know i mean it, what else are you going to do you know and, and of course we have things on panels and you can put them in when you're going to listen for an hour or two and you can go put them in the closet uh but you know mostly I, I sort of don't really worry about that if if you have you know if you're unable to do stuff for cosmetic reasons well then you know that's, that's your problem that's, not that's, mine yeah i suppose so yeah, yeah that's true. but you know I, I also do want to say besides comb filtering Uh, which is a a skewed frequency response. You know, it's a whole bunch of peaks and nulls in a row uh, that makes that hollow flanged off-mic kind of sound, flanging, phasing, what they call the phasing effect. And the peaks and nulls at low frequencies that I was mentioning much earlier, which is also really the same thing. Uh, There's also excess ambience. And, you know, people often obsess over, oh, I don't want to make my room too dead. I've heard that a dead room is terrible. And, you know, a dead room is not the end of the world. When a room is totally dead, or at least, you know, all the nearby and strong reflections are tamed, the sound is larger because then you can hear the reverb that's embedded in the recording. Uh, I think it's a mistake to think that your small bedroom or your even modest-sized living room is needed to contribute to the overall spaciousness of music. And I'm talking not only for home studios, but also for audiophile listening rooms. I mean, just generally playing music uh, because reflections off surfaces that are, you know, 10 feet away or close or 15 feet away even uh, are going to sound near. The reflections come back soon and they're very strong because of the close proximity. And that drowns out the larger, uh, (laughs) lusher, more or less reverb that's actually in the recording. So usually the effect of adding absorption in a room uh, is to make the sound bigger, not smaller. Ah, uh, okay. That's a tr-
0: Gaz, I'm looking at you there, actually, and you've got a little bit of uh, um, sound panels going on in your room. And Is that is that purely from a recording point of view or is that sort of reflection? So what was the kind of...
4: Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this studio is only... Originally meant to be a temporary space, but I've ended up being here for a few years. But uh, uh, So it, it's only like, uh, you know, it's just a little bit, the speakers kind of, I'm sure Ethan could probably find a much better setup for it. But it's just, yeah, it does help a little bit. Um, and I've also got the KRK Ergo in here, which I would be interested to see what Ethan would think about that. Is that, that the
0: digital, that's the one that auto, is it auto-corrects to the room, is that right?
4: Yeah, it comes with the it comes with the measurement mic. And then put some sounds out of the speakers, and then it sort of takes some, uh, and then it just kind of um, EQs the output to try and sort of eliminate lumps and bumps and stuff. And I really, really like it a lot. You can bypass it and listen to it with it on and off. And with it, when it's on, it's, it's a much more stable, solid image. It sounds, and the bass is so much nicer. So it does work for me. So I'm not sure, you know, if if, if you did well. I, I was gonna, my, yeah, no, I was going that's my answer.
0: question I, yes yeah, that's, that's a that's a uh, and a very good question it is too ethan yes um so well, I, I,
1: I, yeah i can talk well i can talk a little bit about that there are three problems uh that we've now talked about there's peaks there's nulls and you know at least for the base range and there's ringing where you you know play a sine wave for half a second at 50 hertz and you s- cut it off suddenly and depending on whether that frequency rings in your room uh, it, it will continue to sound for maybe even a whole second before it's decayed down by 60 dB. Uh, there are, you know, probably below 300 Hz probably, you know, three four resonances like that. Just looking at what I can see gas in your uh, uh, on your camera. So uh, EQ, it's the automatic EQ of Ergo and uh, the uh, and, and other systems like that it's great that they will automatically find the offending resonant frequencies and reduce them, but that's all they, uh, that's all they can do is lower the peaks. You can't raise a null. I mean, you really can't yeah. cause the nulls are 20, 30 DB deep compared to the flat level response and they can't change the ringing. And, uh, in the, when these things first came out, some of the vendors were claiming that they could fix all this stuff, and they would claim that they could fix it for every seat in the house, and now they've gotten a little less aggressive in their, aggressive in their marketing uh, because it's, it's just not true. Uh, but certainly, you know, in a room where the peaks are the bigger problem… Uh, absolutely, that kind of EQ can help. Uh, it's still not as good as bass traps because it won't bring up the nulls, which are in most rooms the bigger problem. I see it looks like a wall behind PJ is pretty close behind. And if if you're PJ, are you sitting at your mix position? No, I'm not. No. So so when you mix, you don't have a wall like five feet behind you?
2: No, I do not. No, the okay. wall is. Uh, I would say I'm not exactly sure. I've not measured from exactly the mix position, but it's at least four feet beyond that. And there's a base trapping in that wall the entire right, rear that, wall is a base trap
1: right and that's and that's really important because without that usually the nulls become the bigger problem i think the most common problem that i see in forums are people say i made a mix it sounds great in my control room when i play it in the car it sounds totally tubby and boomy and that's because they uh, are in a null in their control room uh, well, not a null, there's probably three nulls, but usually there's one really bad one between you know 80 hertz, 100 hertz, 120, somewhere right in the fullness range. And so they add too much space to compensate. So in most rooms, in my experience, bedroom size spaces and a little bigger. The nulls are the bigger problem. But some rooms, especially square rooms or two to one rooms, meaning like 10 feet by 20 feet, uh, or three meters by six meters for you guys uh, uh often peaks can be the bigger problem so the eq can fix the peaks but guys i bet you if you put in you know 10 bass traps in there you'd go whoa this is you know better <laughs> you know what, what, is, you it, what is it what is it that EQ...
0: causes a null actually ethan i mean because this is a this is a phenomenon i'm not not being a you know a, a, a familiar with what is it that actually causes that
1: well, all acoustic problems are caused by reflections off the walls, uh, floor and ceiling, all of them. But considering just the wall behind you, because that's usually where the worst of these problems come from, the sound comes out of the speakers, goes past your ears, and of course you hear it as it goes past your ears, uh, hits the wall behind you, and then comes back towards the speakers. And the, uh, so the sound coming from the speakers collides, if you will, and butts heads, with the sound coming back off the wall, and depending on the relative phase, which depends entirely on the current frequency and the current distance. I mean, if the thing is ten feet away and uh, you're 80 okay. hertz, whatever, you'll either get a peak or a null or something in between. So it's, uh, if, it's
0: to do with the phase of the frequencies as they pass each other,
1: effectively. It, it, exactly, and as they collide in the air. And in a real room, uh, it's not only a single reflection off the rear wall, but you know, you know, when sound doesn't doesn't go like a like a laser beam, it spreads outward, so it hits the back wall, but some of it bounces off at an angle, hits the side. So the uh, frequency response at any given cubic centimeter in a room is the result of the direct sound from the speaker plus a whole lot of competing reflections. And that's why you can measure, and there's examples in my book and also on uh, my two websites, uh, of of measuring the frequency response in a bedroom-sized space, moving the microphone four inches uh, and which isn't even this, which is smaller than the space between your two ears and the response at low frequencies is totally different. And I remember getting into a big argument online saying, well, the wavelength of, you know, 40 Hertz is like 30 feet long or whatever. And, you know, so you'd have to go at least a quarter wavelength to go from a peak to a null. And that's not true. Uh, I mean, it's just not because there's so many different reflections, uh, all combining, uh, so, uh, uh, and even as low as, you know, 20, 30 hertz, you can go from a peak to a null just a couple inches away. So, uh, uh, but all problems, all these problems, whether it's ringing, uh, uh, flutter echo, uh, excess ambience, too much reverb, peaks, nulls, all of that stuff is all caused by reflections and all of that stuff doesn't exist outdoors, at least if you climb up a flagpole.
0: Ah, well, that, that, I mean, it must be an incredibly difficult job to actually measure and counteract that. I mean, do you have to kind of, do you have to be... Do you have to be kind of uh, take a kind of fairly blunt approach to it, or can you be really kind of tweaky about dealing with those?
1: Well, but well, both. I mean, you know, you can solve ninety solve percent of your problems with you know, with one of our my company's room kits. And not to plug my company, other companies sell you know effective products too. But you know, that's what I often tell people. You know, just buy one, buy our buy our standard room kit. You know, stick to stuff where it shows on that drawing on our website, and you're going to be 90% of the way there, maybe completely there. And uh, you can get tweaky if you want. But, again, because these things change over such small distances, where you put the measuring, mic uh, is important if you want to measure. I mean, and you don't really need to measure. As Richard will tell you, you put in a bunch of treatment, and the difference is obvious. It's not a placebo effect. You know, it's a real improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you know if you measure and you move the mic a little bit you have a completely different completely different response so how are you going to compensate for that really all you can do is put as many bass traps as you can manage whether it's you know you're limited by space or available corners or what your wife will allow or how much money you have but that's why I use the word manage as many bass traps as you can manage and uh, absorption at you know all the reflection points and near recording surf- you know surfaces near where you're going to record if you also record. And yeah, that's that's I mean, that's really all you need. It's it's not as complicated as people think, and it's not as complicated as some people want you to believe.
0: So um, one question that uh, KSR80 uh, alluded to in the chat room: uh, What happens if you turn the volume down? Is there a, a, an optimum volume for a particular size room to monitor at? I mean, does, it, does
1: no, it... no, acoustics are is is purely linear, and when you get up to like 160 or something dB SPL, uh, then uh, the air actually does compress, and you can get some of that in the throat of high compression uh, drivers. You know, the the, the really big uh, uh, compression drivers, the horn drivers they use for, uh, you know, ten thousand. Seat venues. But other than that, uh, acoustics is purely linear. Whatever happens at 40 dB SPL happens exactly the same at 80 and 100 and 110 okay. in any reasonable sound level. It's all, uh, When sometimes people are told, well, if you have acoustic problems, just monitor softly and that solves the problems. Well, really, it, it doesn't really, it might put some of the echoes below the threshold of audibility so you don't hear the echoes anymore, but the peaks and nulls are still the same.
0: Yeah, I suppose the the only thing that might become an issue is you know things resonating at, at different volumes because they're going to be you know well, set but they off. still
1: resonate. Other now a buzzing windowsill, uh, <laughs> or you know things like that will they won't buzz until you get to a certain volume and then all of a sudden they start rattling. But that's different from natural resonance in the room caused by you know the parallel walls and the sound bouncing back bouncing back and forth between yeah, the walls. Yeah,
0: that's the uh, the cheap vinyl in my uh, in my nineteen uh, ninety model Ford, which uh, you know at certain speeds on the motorway. just kind of rattles really irritatingly and you try constantly trying to poke things in into the gaps to stop that from happening don't really want to do that in your listening environment really if you can help that i suppose well you
1: know i I always tell people that's one of the most revealing things uh, you can do is play a low frequency sine wave sweep as you would get from room measuring software that starts at you know 20 hertz and goes up to 300 hertz and play it you know really loud and not so loud you're going to blow up your speakers but you know really loud and you'll hear all kinds of buzzes, and those buzzes and rattles are there when you're playing music, but you don't really hear it usually because of the masking effect. And that's why I always kind of am amused by uh, the audiophile beliefs that some of these, you know, some of these things like jitter that are 100 plus dB down below the music have an audible effect. They say, well, even if you can't hear it, it affects your perception. I'm like, no, it doesn't. You can't hear your windows buzzing, and they're like 20, 22 dB below, you know, that bass note. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the top 20 or 30 dB is really what matters the most, I think. It's just being, I'm trying to be practical here.
0: Yeah, well, and that seems to be, you know, the kind of watchword really for the whole of what you do. Uh, Ethan, I think we're kind of getting now to the to, to the point of closure. I want to thank you very much for uh, your time. I wish you every uh, success with your book. Uh, you can find out details about it on ethanwiner.com. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon, uh, and uh, you could get it for Kindle as well I noticed was that um, so that that's right not, that's and I'll cool. also
1: mention i am I'll try not to turn this into too much of a sales pitch or too long uh, when my when I started talking up my book it's coming it's coming it'll be ready in a couple months it'll be ready in a month a lot of people a lot of people ask how can I get a signed copy and I, I couldn't see any practical way other than to sell it myself so I do sell it myself uh I can't offer the same five dollar discount that Amazon does, but I include some bonus content that you don't otherwise get. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that.
0: Uh, okay, cool. And that they can get to that through EthanWiner.com as well, right? Yeah,
1: right on my homepage. There's a, a big board that says, read all about Ethan's book, and it takes you right to a page that describes the book in detail, has a whole table of contents, lists all the uh, videos that come with it, and, and a lot of the stuff.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Ethan. Very much appreciated your time with us. And also to my other guests, we'll say uh, goodbye also to... Uh, PJ Tracy there PJ Tracy Sound, who uh, uh thank you very much for joining us and uh and um yeah and you've sounded oh, lovely through your signal thank you. path
2: today thank you my my pleasure and and Ethan thank you for your time it was a it was a real pleasure to listen to what you have to say and I I just want to say to the audience anybody that doubts the truth of the last uh the last uh bit of wisdom that Ethan imparted in terms of um um the top twenty thirty dB being the most important watch, um, which I'm sure Nick will probably have a link in the show notes to uh, Ethan's AES 2009 presentation. There's some fascinating uh, video and audio uh, examples in that vi- in that presentation, and I highly recommend it.
0: Thank you are. so much. Thank certainly you very much. In fact, I think I can post that into the chat room quickly. There we go. If I put that there that's it and i can then switch to it which means that it'll show up on the screen hold on <laughs> this is a slightly convoluted uh, way of doing it but uh, there we go it's the bottom la- uh, it's the bottom link there in fact red walks was the- beat me to it so once okay. again thank you very much pj and also gaz williams thank you very much for joining us this week as well and if you speak then i will see which window you end up in but i can't see you at the moment so yeah, uh, I was
4: uh, thinking that ethan must have uh got a few enemies from that a e s conference so i thought it was uh I thought that was well,
1: the, the, well, the only the one, only the well only the people that sell you know two hundred dollar power cords snake oil. <laughs> 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 But
0: anyway, well, thank you for anyway. Thank you very much, Gaz. Um, look forward to seeing you uh, very soon, and um, thank you very much. And also, thank finally, there, Rich Hilton in sunny Connecticut, um, where it is in fact sunny. I normally say that anyway, but it actually is. All right, Rich, and uh, I guess you're going to be with us. Are you going to be? Uh, well, actually, there's no show next week because uh, I'm going on holiday. So uh, uh, I don't know if you're going to be uh, on the road, Rich, or uh, or what. I will be leaving the 28th,
3: so uh, I will be on the road, but I may be able to do some of them remotely on my new laptop. Oh,
0: you need my laptop. So uh, we'll try. Excellent. Well, I've got, I have got—I bought something new. I've got a new phone. That's my new cool. uh, HTC One X, which is massive. I thought it was a great idea because of my eyesight, but actually I've got really small hands, so I can't operate it one-handed mm-hmm. like I thought I was going to. But nonetheless, I'll get used to it. Anyway, uh, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. Mm. That was Sonic Talk number 272. Uh, I was actually considering um, just playing us out with a little bit of – Ethan's got a a fantastic um, video which he put together some time back of uh, a song composed entirely of cello parts. So uh, I think we should probably have a little bit of that as well. So thank you very much, Ethan. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you, and uh, I'll play out with a little bit of your piece.